It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Can I just start by paying reference to that shocking story that a lot of people woke up to this morning? And this is the story out of Tullamore in County Offaly of this young teacher who's now been named uh, Ashleen Murphy, young 22 year old primary school uh, teacher who was murdered yesterday. It's just such a shocking story and a lot of the papers and a lot uh, online now are putting up photographs of Ashley Murphy. What a stunningly beautiful young woman uh, she was. She was attacked along the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore about four o'clock yesterday afternoon. So you're talking about it was still bright daylight. Gardaí believed the attack, it, it's described as a busy recreational route. Gardaí believed that the attack at this stage, it was random and that Ashleen Murphy did not know her attacker and seemingly the attacker fled when another woman came upon the attack followed by another woman. He panicked and then ran off but obviously it was too late for Ashleen but the two women who came upon the attack because as I say it's a very busy recreational area and the two women that came upon the attack they were then able to give a detailed description of the attacker to the uh, Gardaí and uh, he was arrested fairly quickly after that and it seems for this young uh, teacher she had finished her teaching day yesterday and she went out for a jog it seems it was something she did regularly and what is really sort of ironic was the route that she took to do her jog this route on the canal is known as Fiona's Way and the reason that it's called Fiona's Way it was named in memory of the missing woman Fiona Pender Fiona Pender was from that uh, area so I thought when I heard that I thought my god how ironic uh, was that Ashley was described as a traditional musician she came she comes from a very musical family she would be known in the midlands and a music circle seemingly all over the uh, country obviously now an incident room has been set up at Tullamore uh, guard the station guard they believe that other people in the area may have witnessed uh, the crime and they're obviously looking for them to uh, come forward and the man who was arrested away from the scene but it was a short time after because of these two other women who were able to give such a detailed description he remains in Garda custody in, in uh, Tullamore Gardaí say the suspect is well known to them 
and he's been suspected of being involved in previous violent incidents and obviously a post-mortem is going to be carried out to establish the cause of Ashley Murphy's death. It is just truly shocking in a huge, huge sense of shock obviously in Tullamore and in the, in the, the Midlands that, you know, I heard journalists, you know, saying that the sense of shock is, is palpable. People are just so taken aback because so many people are out exercising and I think because of the pandemic a lot of people took up exercising and getting out for a walk every day or getting out for uh, having a little bit of a jog and trying to keep fit uh, and you know on an area that's very that's used for a lot of people jogging and walking why you know what you you think you would be quite safe in an area like that particularly at four o'clock in the afternoon and when I heard about this case last night and I realised that she was a, a primary school uh, teacher she seems she's a graduate of, of Mary I but she she's was a primary school teacher in Skull Niamh Column Kill. It's at the primary school in Durrow. And she was teaching first class. Uh, and at 22, it was probably her first teaching post. But I was thinking of those little children. You know, at that age, when you're in first class, everybody loves their teacher, uh, particularly the smallies and a young, enthusiastic teacher, you know, coming in, starting out her career would have been full of joy when she went to school every day. And you could imagine, you know, those little children, the parents having to tell those little ones. I, I mean, how do you even to tell first class what are first class seven euros how do you tell them that uh, what has happened to Miss Murphy I know that the Department of Education counsellors are available the school actually is open today and uh, there's going to be counselling available because obviously the staff are going to need counselling all of the pupils are going to need uh, counselling but I think for her, her class those first class those little boys and girls God help them very very difficult time and obviously our deepest deepest sympathy to the Murphy family it just is truly an absolutely shocking case May Young Ashley Murphy rest in peace already seeing some texts and whatsapps coming in on people about the new uh, the new regulations that come in from midnight tonight for close contacts and people who test positive for COVID-19 some are seeing this as a major gambling of the relaxation of the COVID-19 isolation rules but obviously it's in a bid to try to rescue workplaces many workplaces have been rescued absolutely crippled uh, because of the staff shortages due to people either testing positive or being identified as a close contact. So from midnight tonight, so basically from tomorrow, thousands of vaccine boosted people with no symptoms. And this is important. It has to be with no symptoms. If you're identified as a close uh, contact, you no longer need to stay at home. You can head out to work. You can, you know, go. I won't say go about your business as uh, normal, but you certainly don't have to restrict your movements. You do have to continue taking antigen uh, tests and according to Tony Houlihan you also need to wear a high grade face mask also changing from tomorrow if you test positive for COVID-19 your isolation period is cut from it's 10 days at the moment and that goes back to 7 days so after 7 days you are free to go out and about now the measures were marked by further confusion last night though after the HSE says it's not going to be distributing the more expensive higher grade masks to the general public because earlier the chief medical officer when he was talking about the need for people if you're identified as a close contact you take your antigen tests now if you're identified as a close contact the antigen tests will be sent out to you free of charge by the HSC but Tony Houlihan also said that these higher grade masks 
will be sent out to the uh, general uh, public. Uh, but now the HSC were very quick off the mark to say, no, sorry, we will send out the antigen test, but we're not sending out the more expensive medical higher grade uh, face masks. And when I was trying to get more information on this yesterday evening and trying to find out those higher grade face masks, they cost about two euro each and remember they're single use so you use them once and then throw them away they, they but it seems they are obviously much more effective than the cloth masks that we're all used to wearing and washing out and uh, reusing but if people are not going to go out and buy the high grade face masks and if there's a cost implication you can understand why some people will not be doing it some people are saying this is going to uh, raise the risk of people passing on uh, COVID-19. Now the move on the isolation rules has been welcomed by a whole host of people, particularly everybody in the public services, people in private businesses. And the private businesses many of those have been uh, paralysed some of them, we were only talking about it yesterday on the programme, have been forced to close because of this explosion of Omicron cases resulting in a spike then in staff absences. Now Dr Tony Houlihan defended the move yesterday and why he along with Neffet had recommended it saying that they weren't ditching precautions by replacing the stay at home rule for fully boosted close contacts because he said the requirement is still there to take the antigen tests for seven days and to wear the higher grade uh, mask. He said the high coverage of the population with COVID boosters he's saying that that is also offering a reassurance. Now there's starting to be signs that we are getting very near the peak of Omicron. We another Nearly 21,000 cases uh, yesterday and, and health officials obviously are saying that that figure is probably closer to 30,000 because the people who were, were not able to get a PCR tests. So it's looking like it is uh, peaking. But there is now a fear that relying on people who are potentially exposed to the virus, we're relying on people to do the right thing, to take the antigen tests, to wear the higher grade uh, masks Uh, because obviously by doing that you are protecting particularly vulnerable people from the virus. I saw Professor Kingston Mills of Trinity College. He says there is no choice but to rely now on personal responsibility that people will do the right thing. He says most people will do do it and if they do turn out to be positive they will uh, isolate. However he did recognise that there may be no other alternative for the government because of the impact it was having on our national workforce Uh, high levels of vaccine booster coverage and antigen tests he says certainly is and will uh, help. Other scientists were suggesting that the relaxation should have been targeted at badly hit sectors rather than the introduction of the blanket fashion in that it's been done it's it's for everybody they're saying they should have just maybe gone towards hospitality or the health industry or industries that really are down on a staff the new guidelines say close contacts should try to continue to limit meeting other people outside their homes but in particular they're asking people you know avoid crowded areas avoid poorly ventilated uh, areas Uh, but that obviously is going to be impossible if you're working say for example in hospitality it's impossible to say to that person uh, go to work but avoid being being in a crowded area so I don't really think that's going to work Uh, the move comes obviously as relief to the employers group IBAC they say many of their businesses are struggling 
just to take the first steps towards addressing crippling staff shortages which have been introduced certainly since Christmas. Now the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, they've warned that weakening public health advice at this stage has the potential to lead to more people contracting the virus. They're saying allowing potentially infected people to continue to work going to have a knock-on effect because of what's going to happen. It's going to see an increase in case transmission. Uh, But Dr Houlihan yesterday said the HSE uh, will provide symptomatic people and all of their close contacts with the antigen test. They are going to continue with that, but it's just they're not going to be giving them the uh, more expensive face masks. People who have not received the vaccine booster, by the way, they still have to restrict their movements for seven days. However, a person with two doses of a vaccine who tested positive for COVID-19 since the 1st of December, they're also exempt. They don't have to limit or restrict their movements and they also do not have to do a test unless they develop symptoms. So that's because I know yesterday somebody was asking about that. Somebody had tested positive uh, for COVID-19 and therefore wasn't able to get uh, the booster. So they will be exempt if they're a close contact unless they develop uh, symptoms. So there's lots of people still very confused about it all but hopefully over the coming days when it gets introduced from tonight it'll get easier for most people to understand. But I suppose the headline ones really are the fact that if you test positive from midnight tonight you'll only be restricting your movements you'll only be asked to isolate should I say for seven days instead of ten and if you're a close contact and you're boosted or you had COVID-19 since the 1st of December you can still go about your business but you need to do the antigen test and you also need to get uh, and buy those high grade face masks if those high grade face masks as I say certainly when I was doing some research last night they seem to be around the two euro mark will that put people off buying them will the cost actually uh, inhibit people from actually buying them your thoughts welcomed on the new relaxation of the COVID-19 isolation rules are welcome you can call John Paul 0818 103 103 or you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Cork today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie now yesterday on foot of advice from the Chief Medical Officer the government have decided to ease restrictions around close contacts and the announcement suggests the tide may be turning in the battle with COVID-19, even though we still have some of the highest incident levels in Europe. So what now for the hospitality sector? Michael O'Donovan is chair of the Cork Vintners Federation and Michael joins me. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Uh, firstly, do you welcome the new rules around the isolation, especially for close contacts? Yes, absolutely. Look, uh, we've seen right across the city, the county and the country, you know, hospitality uh, businesses have been closed uh, during the month of December. And I suppose really from the third week of December onwards, it's had a a major impact on businesses. They've, They've just run out of staff, a lot of them. And a lot of it has been the close contacts, even though we know, you know, most of the staff are vaccinated and a lot are boosted um, and haven't had symptoms because they're younger people. Uh, but it has had a detrimental effect on business um, because they've just run out of staff and had to close their businesses because of it. So the easing of it is very much welcomed. Um, and look, there is still the protocols of the antigen testing and everything in there. So, you know, people should feel reassured that, um, that people will still have uh, health priorities as the utmost uh, importance 
experienced in running the business. Even though the one sort of glitch is the Tony Hulhan asking people to wear these higher grade masks and they're not going to be given out free and they're about two euro each. They are and um, I think look the availability of them is the big problem at the moment. Um, look, since we've heard that yesterday uh, I feel that numerous calls uh, people um, I'm being told um, shops just don't have them. So you know oh, it, it, I, it, even, even at two euro each you can't get them. Yeah, that, that's a big problem is the availability of them. Um, they're in some places, but not they're not widely available is the big problem. Uh, now, are you hearing when restrictions on closing time may be starting to ease? Um, well, look, we, we've been asking this for a number of weeks now. Um, and what we've been told all along is that it would be the end of January. Um, look, we've... I suppose there's a small chink of light yesterday, but we've seen a lot of this kite flying and we've got used to it over the two years. Um, You know, they'll uh, send out a message and hopefully it will get there. Um, Look, we're we're very hopeful that it will end on the 30th of uh, January because we see it's just having an enormous effect on business and especially since Tuesday the 4th of January, um, talking to our suppliers who would be a huge gauge of how industry is going you know some suppliers are talking about 80 percent drop in business you know so um you can see it look in cork city i was in dublin even tuesday night i stayed in dublin um it's a ghost town like at half past eight on on tuesday night uh we've all seen it la- the last couple of weeks cork city i've been to a few towns around the county you know even on weekend nights there there's there's not a whole lot happening in uh, in in some towns because some premises just haven't been open there's just not enough people around and since the 4th of January people have gone back to work you know most people are working till 5 o'clock half past 5 Monday to Friday so Monday to Friday you know there's nothing happening really there's very few people around even for lunch trade talking to my colleagues you know with people working from home uh, there's nobody out in to support the businesses during the day so businesses are really struggling at the moment and when they will start to do opening up of hospitality, will it be, have you any indication, will it be gradually, maybe nine o'clock first and ten o'clock, or do you think it'll just go to full reopening? We don't know is the honest answer because they are all they're talking about is, um, you know, the cabinet are meeting again next Wednesday. Um, we would hope that they might discuss hospitality at that and engage with us. But at the moment, they're just telling us we are not on the uh, on the agenda, which was um, which was yesterday's agenda. So, like, we're we're hoping that it will be on next week's agenda and that they would in, engage with uh, industry. Because look, we had last September put proposals to them, but they didn't take those proposals, and they they went with their um, I suppose their thinking on it and. I don't think it worked out, so I would hope that they would engage with uh, industry and um, just listen to our proposals and hopefully engage with us um, and to work with us to get back to, to, to normality. Yeah, reading in the papers today, you know, some senior sources were expecting, you know, in the coming weeks, restrictions will be lifted um, early February. I think at the latest was what was what some are saying. But again, as previously, when you were doing full reopening, you need your industry needs a lead in time to be prepared. I take it. Absolutely. Look, (laughs) running a business, you cannot just walk in the door and especially a pub business. You can't walk in the door, turn on the lights and 
off you go. You know, we are open at the moment, which is a huge help. So the the lead time is slightly cut compared to when we were closed and trying to reopen the business. But even at that, you need time to get it fully stocked. You need time to get your... Look, we're on reduced hours with staff at the moment, and it's just not as simple as increasing the hours. You have to bring in the extra staff to cover it. So uh, you need time to get all this in place. But uh, we we probably wouldn't need as much lead time as if we were closed. Mm. But we still need, uh, as you said, lead time into it to get to get product in, to get everything sorted out. Um, because increasing, look, if we go to uh, increasing our hours, which please God we will after the 30th of June, going back some way towards, you know, later opening, um, that will still need a, a couple of days notice. Uh, we, we can't just do it from a Wednesday to a Friday. It would have to be three or four days notice to get things ready for it. Did some publicans opt just not to reopen at all that it financially wasn't viable? Absolutely, it is. You know, you, you know, everyone has to sit down and make their own calculation because, um, you know, I suppose the bigger urban areas had a good December. I won't say a great December, had a good December in that people were still around and people were still going out. But as I've said, since, you know, the 3rd of January, it's just gone off a cliff face because people went back to work and people went back home, travelled out of the country. Um, so we've seen a significant drop. But some places don't get that bump in the month of December. And like if you had to sit down and work it out, um, some people are telling me that Saturday may have been the only evening, night, that they would have had people in their premises. But that's not viable to run a business on one night when there's six other nights in the in the week. So some people have had to close their business because they just wouldn't have had any business prior to, you know, yeah, 8 o'clock. Yeah, just, yeah, just not worth, it, worth, it, worth the opening. Um, and, and we know cases, listen, are, are still high, but uh, let's look at the positive. Hospital numbers are, are stable. Do you feel we're nearing the end of the pandemic? Do you get that sense? Uh, you would get, look, talking to members, talking, but look, none of us are medical people, but the feeling is on the ground that we are getting closer to the end and this Omicron uh, variant, everybody's hoping that it's going to burn itself out and this could be the be I suppose, the closing chapters of the 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 experience that we've had. Uh, we're very hopeful that that is the, the reality of it, but I suppose none of us have a crystal ball to look into the future two, three months down the road. But look, hopefully we're we're almost two years into this in our industry. Uh, we, we, we have to get going. None of us could have predicted this time last year. We'd still be talking about it a, a year later. So hopefully this is the beginning of uh, the end. Just by the way, because we touched on it yesterday that the government are looking at this double bank holiday for St. Patrick's Day. Now, I'm assuming that's something the hospitality industry would very much welcome. Absolutely, we'd, we'd, we'd welcome it around that time. Um, but I suppose the only caveat that we would have is that we would need to be open and to avail of it. It's not much use for us having a double bank holiday if we're still under uh, forms of restrictions. But look, I suppose time will tell in the coming weeks if we do get as look, what's being flown at the moment um, back to some, you know, uh, less restrictions in February and by the time we get to March please God we'll be in a much much better place then we could could make use of those uh, double bank holidays OK and we have Neffert's next meeting is the 20th of uh, January uh, next week so hopefully something out of that meeting Hopefully yes that's okay. the look we, we have to wait and see, but um, in, I suppose we'll be hopefully engaging with, um, with ministers and government uh, TDs in the coming days and weeks ahead to try and 
uh, push home our need for uh, getting businesses back on, on track. OK, listen, we wish you luck with it, uh, Michael, and as always, thank you for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Patricia. Good, Good morning. morning to you, Michael O'Donovan, uh, there, Chair of the Cork Vintners Federation. 0818 103 103. JP, taking your calls. Cork Today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The amount of bollards and signs littering the city centre and, in many cases, becoming eyesores, raising his concerns, a Green Party can Councillor Dan Boyle, who joins me. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome. Now, where are these bollards and uh, and why were they put in place? Just to explain them. Well, I think we're talking more about um, the signs, uh, poles for signs and, and the like. Um, a, a lot of the, the attention to it has come about because uh, Cork City in the last 18 months in particular, and same is true to a lesser extent in a lot of the towns around Cork County, uh, have reconfigured the space in, in their centres. Uh, so there's a lot more pedestrianisation, uh, there's more segregated cycleways. Uh, in Cork we've Cork City, we've, uh, we've developed a lot of uh, new street furniture in the form of um, parklets. Uh, and w- reconfiguring the space means that you try to uh, move the direction in which people use that space. Uh, and because there's more of a pedestrian emphasis on that now, and that emphasis is less about moving between parked cars or trying to avoid moving traffic, uh, what people are coming across now are different forms of obstructions. Uh, they're, they're the poles uh, that have direction signs, uh, other elements of street furniture, like the proper location of bins, uh, other benches, um, some infrastructure that's put in place for telecoms and electricity, for instance. Uh, and uh, as uh, difficult as this is, is for pedestrians, it's uh, an added difficulty for, for wheelchair users, for instance. So in terms of mobility, uh, in changing how we configure the space, we have to rethink uh, how that space can be used and should be used by people uh, of all mobility needs. Uh, and that, that's the deba- debate I'm trying to provoke at the moment. Yeah, I'm thinking of, uh, in particular, wheelchair users, Indeed. people who are visually impaired, mm-hmm. but but even even mums and dads pushing buggies, it must at times be, be, become troublesome for them. Well, it can, because as I say, we're pushing people in different directions with in, in different parts of the space that's becoming available. I mean, the irony is that because there are less parked cars, because there isn't moving traffic in some of these places, there is more space. <laughs> but, Which is uh, great. Uh, but uh, you know where we put where, where we decide to put new street furniture, like for instance seating outside of of, of bars and restaurants, uh, that moves the the area available for movement to other parts of the street, and that's where we're finding the obstacles in the form of unnecessary and, and uh, some some materials that need to be moved from where they are to more more efficient locations. And you mentioned signs. Are there signs? Some of them, because there's so many now, some really don't need to be there. Well, like like the county at the moment, we're in the uh, final stages of our development plan that happens every five or six years. So we, we do have a more detailed uh, examination of the, the feel and the look of the city. Uh, and uh, w- one of the side projects in, in our development pr- uh, plan is a wayfinding project where, where we're looking at what signage is there, what is it there for, what, is, what, are, what are we trying to direct people to, uh, and what do we want there when, when pe- people get to where they want to get to. Uh, and uh, I, I suppose there have been various initiatives over the years where uh, 
these have been added on to in a higgly-piggly type of way. Uh, so there's been uh, a lot of old efforts that haven't been successful but haven't been changed or removed and uh, our way of dealing with in the past hasn't been very effective. So we, we have uh, a mismatch, a mixed match of, of, of signage uh, and we have a lot of unnecessary signage uh, and we need to replace that with a more simplified uh, and less intrusive form of signage and that's what we're hoping to do over the next years or so. Okay, you mentioned the parklets. Are you a fan of the parklets that were installed for the hospitality sector? Oh, well, they weren't installed for the hospitality sector, but... Uh, but they're helping out it, the hospitality sector. Sometimes, yeah, in, in my own local area, in Turnus Cross, for instance, yes, it, it is outside the local pub, uh, and uh, they're a sponsor along with the local community association, but they're in various locations. Uh, but I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I, I, because they are public spaces and they are using uh, the roadway in such a way that makes the roadway usage more democratic. I mean, we've had this discussion on your show before, Patricia, but what we need to talk about in terms of how we use space is how it suits all members of society. Uh, and in the past, the planning discussion we've had has been al- almost totally focused on cars, their usage and how they should be parked, when, when the emphasis should be on people. People, how they move, whether they walk, whether they cycle, whether they use public transport, uh, and uh, where they can sit and rest, where they can congregate, uh, where they can celebrate life. Uh, and uh, we haven't got that balance right in the past. I think parklets are a good addition to trying to address that balance. Yeah, but the, the one criticism, and as you say, we have discussed it before, people saying that it's taken up parking spaces. Well, I'm not sympathetic, <laughs> you know, because... The no focus, surprise. <laughs> yes, the emphasis in the past has been on, on the parking spaces. Yeah. Uh, and the more parking spaces we create, the more traffic we encourage, the more traffic build-up there is, the less we're inclined to live a good life. Uh, I, I can never understand the logic where there is so much emphasis on trying to cater for the motor car. Okay. There, there, now, cars are an important element of getting people around, but they're most important to who, people whose mobility needs are greatest. So, um, my, my, and I, I'd be very radical on this. I feel that the only parking that should be necessary is disability parking. Well, you see, it's okay because you're, you're talking from a, a city point of view. If you live in a rural area, that car is essential to get you from A to B. We don't have the public infrastructure that you'll have in cities. Yeah, well, in, in rural areas, there is more space available as well. Uh, you see, in the urban area, it becomes a problem because you, you get the build-up and the, and the like. Uh, but, you know... Everyone has a rural background. My dad was an islander, you know, and, and we're a small country and we, we, we live and experience life throughout the country. So the, the idea that there are different forms of life and people are unaware how different people live is not an argument they accept either. They, what, what we need in rural areas uh, is the ability, especially in, in, in the larger towns and sometimes the villages, is an ability to park in a certain area and get around the rest of the area by other means, whether that's by bike or a minibus or walking. Uh, and, and we need to get out of what, what is a kind of a, a drug-induced uh, obsession we have with transport that we feel we have a right to, to move by car from A to B in every circumstances. And we don't have the space uh, and we, we, do, our means to do so causes uh, a price in other uh, situations like higher carbon and, and worse air pollution. These are choices we need to be a bit more serious about in our society. Okay. And in the meantime, you want the, the City Council to take a serious look at these bollards and the signs and see if some of them can be removed. 
I, I think they can. I think they, the, the need is there, and I think the willingness to do so is there as well. I think in the past, uh, you know, things were just left lie uh, because it was more convenient to let them be so. But uh, because we're using the space differently and we're meeting the needs of many more people in our society, we have more of an obligation to act more speedily on this. OK. All right, Dan, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is uh, Green Party City Councillor Dan Boyle. And we were talking there with Councillor Dan Boyle about our street streetscape and how it's changing and there's more bollards and uh, more signs and some of them are becoming eye uh, sores. But James one in Bandon wants to pick up on footpaths and how our streets are getting narrower. Good morning to you, James. Good morning, Patricia. James, your point is that in many, and this is happening in many city and county towns, that the councillor are widening the footpaths. Yeah, widening them to the point where it's almost traffic camming, where you can't get through. Uh, like, I mean, roads have got so narrow. I an article recently by a heavy goods driver where he's regularly having to stop to accommodate uh, the oncoming vehicle on a road that there was no problem meeting before. Now, if you're coming from the tunnel in Cork into the city along by the water there, there's been several changes there where there has been cycle paths put in, uh, paths widened. And I think this is all part of the Green Agreement to go into government where they're committed to spend, I think it's a million a day on footpaths. Now, there seems to be more work being done on footpaths at the moment, but they're all taken over road space. And the yeah. one thing you don't see on the footpaths most of the time are people walking. Like, yeah. The roads are well, busier. People, the yeah. roads are busier. Yeah. Like yeah. Kinsale is an example. You will be familiar with Kinsale. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Kinsale is gridlock. Yeah, and there, and it, it's and it's not the only uh, town. Um, and if you do widen the footpath and bring it out onto the roadway, yeah, you end up with less move, less for cars to pass pass each other. And you reckon it's all part of the green agenda? Well, I think that's part of it. Like, I mean, because in a lot of cases, not alone have you a footpath, but then you have a cycleway outside the footpath again. Like, Perlis has recently been revamped. Yeah. There's been millions there. I think they have two disabled spaces stuck in a corner somewhere for people with disabilities to park and try and walk there. You're familiar with the square in Perlis? I am, yeah. It's yeah. a big, big square. Yeah. But to go, in some cases, they have to go over 100 metres to get to the particular facility they want to get to, if there is a parking space. Yeah, so I and I, I was I was only speaking lately with the Irish Wheelchair Association, and they were making the point that with the parklets that I just mentioned with Councillor Dan Boyd, who very much welcomes them, a lot of those parklets when they took up parking spaces, they also took up disabled parking spaces. Totally, yeah, yeah, they've been they've been thrashed out. Like another thing that's taken up space now. I see it in Dublin, I travel a bit. On uh, one particular street, half the bays are for charging electric cars. So that's more of a grab on space. So there's less space. It's all about forcing the cars out of town. Well, Dan, Dan Boyle almost <laughs> said that. He said everything that he, he's against people getting into uh, cars. Uh, but as the point I made to him, if you live in a rural area and you don't have the Dart or the Lewis or a bus outside your door, you don't have any choice but to get into a car to drive into your nearest town or city. Well, what about if you live in, say, if you're going into Cork and you're used to going in near the Quays somewhere and getting a parking space and you're maybe depending on a Zimmer frame or a wheelchair to get around and you've got an extra half or quarter of a, of a kilometre to walk, 
in the wet or with a buggy. Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, where's the, where's the common sense there? Okay, all right, and I, I think a lot of people will agree with you, certainly on the widening of the footpaths. Whenever we have footpaths widened in any area, we always get people who will make exactly the point you're making, uh, James. It's just, it's, it's causing t- problems with traffic, uh, but it's also the bigger problem. There's less parking spaces for people. All right, listen, James, thank you for that. No problem, Patricia. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, James in Abandon calling 0818103103. Somebody's asking about the National Lottery and the must-win lottery draw. We are going to be dealing with that and talking about that later on in the programme. We've asked the National Lottery to join us to just explain what is going to happen because the must-win lottery draw is going to happen this Saturday. So this will people's be last chance to win that 19 million euro jackpot. But if it isn't won, we're going to have the National Lottery on to explain how they're going to divvy up the cash instead. You can text WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. John in North Cork by WhatsApp. Hi Patricia, I'm just wondering, I have been off work since the 10th of January with COVID-19, fully vaccinated, boosted and all. So I'm just wondering, when does my seven days isolating start? Is it when I got my COVID on the... 10th the results on the 10th of this month or is it uh, or when I got symptoms or is it when I received my PCR test or PCR uh, results well I just checked online obviously they're going to have to update this at the HSC and they say that if you test positive for COVID-19 you stop uh, isolating um, they, with it's 10 days they say since you first developed a symptom so your isolation period starts from when you develop symptoms and then from midnight to night the seven days kicks in but John and I don't know and we'll have to get it checked the new rules that kick in from tonight I'm assuming it's from anyone who tests positive from tomorrow that they only have to isolate for seven days so you're going to be with the 10 days isolation because you tested positive before but we'll get that double checked with the HSE but it's from when you first developed symptoms as opposed to when you received your PCR test and your PCR uh, results so you start counting from when you actually got uh, symptoms and just on boosters by the way the Red House family practice at the Mallow Primary Healthcare Centre were on to us to say they are holding walk-in clinics every day this week so today and tomorrow 9am to 12 in the mornings and 2 to 6 in the afternoon for anybody who needs a Covid booster age 16 or over that's the Red House family practice and they're out at the Mallow Primary Health Care Centre now here's something completely different I'm interested in your thoughts on this how do you tell if something has gone off in your fridge are you one of those people who rely religiously on the date that's on the packet. I mean, for example, we're on the 13th of January. If you were to take out a carton of milk or a carton of yogurt or cheese and it said that the use by date or the best before date was the 12th, say yesterday, would you put that immediately into the bin are, would you do a taste test or would you do a smell test? And the reason that I'm asking is Morrison's 
They are a chain of supermarkets in the UK. They are going to get rid of their used by dates on some of their milk. And what they're saying to people is you need to judge the milk by the sniff and taste test instead. And obviously this is all to do. We're trying to stop people from throwing away food items that are actually still okay and could still be used. So I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Are you as a family, would you never use something that the use by date or the best before date was gone? Or, as I say, do you use, do you give it a good sniff and say, yeah, that's okay, or taste it, yeah, that tastes fine? Um, or do you find yourself, are you throwing away milk in particular? Do you throw away too much milk? Do you throw away too much food out of your fridge and food items? Now, we're not asking anybody to eat or drink food items that may be gone off, but what we're saying is items that may be just a day or two out of the date that's on the package but they're still perfect uh, to, to eat. Would you, for example, would you remove a tiny piece of mould? Maybe you take out a slice of bed and there's a little bit of mould or maybe you take out a packet of cheese and there's a little bit of mould on the edge. Would you just cut it off and eat the rest or would those items go straight into uh, the bin? And when I heard that Morrisons were doing this yesterday, I was thinking about, I mean, uh, our parents and certainly our grandparents lived in an era where they didn't have used by dates where they didn't have best before dates and they very much relied on taste and a smell and certainly grandparents and previous generations never wasted food. Now some would say they didn't have a lot of food so they, they wouldn't have been in the position that they would need to be clearing out a fridge maybe once a week before you head off shopping to dump things into the bin. But your thoughts welcomed on uh, that and are Morrison's right to do that? They're doing it because they know that there's a huge amount of wastage people buying food and then just dumping it uh, afterwards. Is it something you would like to see introduced in this country or would you be very much against it and you're of the view that you would never eat anything if the used by or the best before date was gone on the items. Your thoughts welcomed on that, please, to 0818103103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862103103. We were discussing streetscapes and then it went into a discussion on footpaths in the last hour number of people have been uh, on to us and I can say James Abandon who was bemoaning the fact that our footpaths seem to be getting very wide were narrowing the roads and he was you know chatting with I read an interview I think he said it was with a heavy goods driver who was saying that the heavy goods drivers are finding it difficult now certainly in some of our towns because the roads have gone so narrow that if they need to pass and if you get two heavy goods trucks trying to pass at the same time And then it can lead to all kinds of traffic gridlock and people get frustrated because they're caught in a traffic jam and nobody seems to be going anywhere. And some people are pointed to the fact it's because of the widening of uh, footpaths and a lot of people, as I say, listened to James abandoned in the last hour and said James is dead right. James Incloyne was on to say the newer footpaths in Middleton recently or they've widened uh, them but his issue with these new footpaths and he's wondering have others noticed is whatever type of a surface they've used he says it appears to be extremely slippy in wet weather. He said he's witnessed people falling and uh, slipping and he's now saying is it up to shoe manufacturers to ensure that the sole of every shoe will suit all surfaces and I don't know if shoe companies are going to get involved in that James or is it the footpaths that you need to make sure that the surface is correct. Have others living in the Middleton area or have you been in the Middleton area lately on a wet day 
on the new footpaths. James reckons the surface is very slippery. Eileen gave us a call from Blackpool and she said she agrees with Councillor Dan Boyle. She said, I do feel that as a person whose sight is not fantastic, seats outside of bars on a street, particularly the ones that are not cordoned off, there are bollards there to prevent parking and signs saying one-way streets, they are an obstruction. There are simply too many of them. And Lorraine says, I agree with Councillor Dan Boyle about the proliferation of signs. A lot of those signs are very low down. Uh, she actually witnessed an elderly man walking into one. She said whether he wasn't able to judge the distance properly or didn't see it, but she said he got a fine gash on the side of his head. Tommy in Mallow said it's very unfair on wheelchair users when at every corner there appears to be bollards now, no matter where you go in cities and towns. Then they'll have signs out on footpaths like sandwich boards out on footpaths, advertising uh, shops. While we all welcome pedestrian crossings, Tommy says the problem with the pedestrian crossings is they have to put up a pole where you press the button in order to cross the road and that can make it impossible for wheelchair users to get around. He said, Tommy said that he only really became aware of this recently. He was out for a walk with a friend of his who's a wheelchair user and that's a good point Tommy because a lot of those obstacles you don't see them or you don't realise how you know if you're able-bodied and of good sight you just walk around them and they're not really an inconvenience at all but it's only for people who have mobility issues that they really become an issue for and if you're with somebody in a wheelchair you certainly will uh, see it uh, for sure. 0818 103 103 our lines are open you can text our WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 and smart meters. this came up yesterday we had a listener towards the close of the programme and my apologies we just didn't get a chance to get around to it yesterday a listener contacted us to say Patricia could you find out for me please can you refuse to have a smart meter installed for your electricity people will know that the ESB networks now they have started rolling out it's their national smart metering programme that's what it's called they started rolling it out across the country actually it's been going out since 2019 but they're now coming in to parts of uh, Cork up to the end of last year some 600,000 metres had been installed in customers homes and businesses and what happens is the ESB networks will contact you in advance they'll let you know the day that they are coming to your house to install your smart meter many homes the meter is outside so you don't even need to be at home when they come and they put the smart meter in and you go about your business and uh, off, off you go and the ESB networks say that, that to the update of the smart meter supports smart grids, electric driving, e-heat and local renewable generation. Now, smart meters are installed in every home and will be offered to everyone at no additional costs to customers. But when we asked the ESB networks about are they compulsory and can a person refuse one, they tell us. A customer who does not wish to receive a meter upgrade at this time can contact the ESB networks or their electricity supplier to register their preference. ESB networks will then engage with the customer to understand their issues and to provide reassurance as to why they're installing these smart meters. If a customer still doesn't want a meter upgrade at that time, ESB Networks will not proceed with the replacement but will re-engage with these customers later as the programme continues and the benefits of the new services are better understood. And they say a customer will require a smart meter to avail of 
new smart services which have been rolled out by electricity supply companies and are to take part in what they're calling the microgeneration scheme that was recently launched and announced by the Department of the Environment. I'm not too sure about that microgeneration scheme, but no doubt if it's something that was recently uh, launched, we'll hear more about it in the future. So, but the answer from the ESB Network space, it was quite a lengthy statement they issued with us. But to that gentleman who contacted us yesterday, yes, you are entitled to refuse it and what normally happens is a letter will come out particularly if your meter is outside your house uh, therefore you don't need to be there on the day that your smart meter gets in, installed and I, uh, how I know is I had a smart meter installed at the end of last year and I got a letter from the ESB networks so Now my meter is outside as well and they you know, clearly said uh, I didn't need to be there but if I didn't want to get one installed then I needed to uh, contact them but for people whose meters are inside and you will have older homes where the meter might be just inside the front door or could be anywhere uh, in the house obviously you're going to need to be in to let the, the person in to change, to change your uh, smart meter but if your meter is outside you need to keep a lookout for that letter that will come from the ESB networks to say that they're doing it this is for people who don't want are as the ESB networks say if you are adamant that you don't want one then contact your electricity supplier to register your preference you can do that in advance of getting a letter to say that the smart meter is coming your uh, way but certainly they are working their way now through County Cork at the moment and as I say the actual rollout started in 2019 I don't know when the whole of the country is going to be done because it takes about a half an hour it takes for the engineer to come in and to replace the smart meter as I say I had mine installed at the back end of uh, last year and everything is going fine. You can call the programme 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. Genesis Circuits there in Little Island. They are looking for rework slash assembly operators with experience in surface mount components and soldering process. You email a CV to info at genesis slash circuits dot com. Munster Bovine are currently recruiting for general operatives for their lab in Mallow. Applicants must be computer literate and an agri background would be an advantage. CV please to careers at munsterbovine.ie. Tower Crane Operator, wanted for work in Cork City. Contact jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. And a front of house position is available at Bakerstone Cafe. They're at the Photo Retail Park in Carrigtool. Please apply with your CV to hello at bakerstone.ie You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie Now the Irish Community Air Ambulance based at Rathcool outside of Mill Street had its busiest year in 2021 responding to over 500 emergencies across 14 different counties. But despite that increasing demand, the charity has to fundraise over €2 million just to keep going. The CEO of the Air Ambulance is Micheál Sheridan who joins me this morning. Good morning to you Micheál. Good morning, Patricia. You're very welcome uh, to the programme. You, you, I mean, looking at the figures, over 500 emergencies last year, that's running at you know, nearly 10 call-outs uh, a week. Who decides when the community air ambulance is actually needed and needs to be tasked? Yeah, so we're tasked in the same way as a, as a road ambulance would be to some effect. Somebody has a medical emergency or a traumatic injury or there's a, a road traffic collision, they phone 999. 
Uh, that goes through to the call centre for the National Ambulance Service and uh, to the dispatchers there. And, and they're effectively the people who, in conjunction with the Aero Medical Desk in the National Ambulance Service, would make the decision as to whether a helicopter needs to be dispatched or a road ambulance, or if it's a multi-vehicle collision, for example, a number of assets, road ambulances, air ambulance, and so on. And what type of incidents were you tasked to last year? Yeah, so in total last year, we were tasked to 512 um, incidents, and that was obviously an increase from 419 the previous year. Our main taskings last year were to cardiac arrest, so one in five of our uh, taskings last year were to cardiac arrest. Um, then the second most um, kind of the second reason we were tasked mostly was for road traffic collisions. So we were tasked to just under 90 road traffic collisions last year, uh, and then after that, 64 farming-related incidents, uh, 64 what we would term as cardiovascular, uh, which is things like heart attacks, serious heart attacks like uh, STEMI heart attacks, uh, strokes. Um, then what we were categorised as general trauma calls. So 63 of those. Um, And again, even one of the things that maybe people may not think about, uh, just under 50 falls from heights. Um, So even in December, uh, we had a gentleman who was putting up Christmas lights um, who required the the air ambulance after falling off a ladder at his home. So um, a a broad range, but mainly cardiac arrest, road traffic collisions and then farming incidents. And 14 different counties, Michal. So it isn't just Munster that you cover. It's not. I mean, primarily, primarily we're tasked to Cork, Kerry, uh, the likes of Tipperary, Clare, Limerick, um, and but then also Waterford, uh, Wexford, um, and even last year, on a number of occasions, we were tasked to counties like uh, Wicklow and Leash, um, so and and even up as far far north as Mayo and Galway. So, um, yeah. So primarily, primarily um, Munster, but you know when we're tasked to go to an accident or an incident um, outside of the Munster area, we would we would also respond to those. And who would be on board the air ambulance when you take off? Yes, so so obviously um, our, our pilot, um, and then um, on about 60% of the days that we fly, we would have what's called a dual AP crewing, and that would be to advanced paramedics. So, um, And then on, on the remainder of the time, it would be an advanced paramedic and what's called um, an EMT um, but but mostly put mostly advanced paramedics, um, dual two advanced paramedics with the with the pilot in the crew. And do you have equipment on board that would be similar to an ordinary ambulance turning up as a? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. So so they would come with effectively the same the same equipment. The one difference, obviously, would be people you know would be familiar. You know, when you get to a, a road accident and there's road ambulances, they would be loading the patient in onto you know sometimes. Uh, wheel trolleys, whereas uh, what, what would happen is a patient being transferred from scene into the helicopter would be transferred um, in the side door of the helicopter on a um, on a you know a solid stretcher. So um, so that would be the difference. But yeah, in terms of the types of equipment and the types of skill, in terms of the medical crewing on board, um, you're effectively bringing the same. Except as I said, on on a lot of occasions, we're bringing two advanced paramedics to the scene of a, an emergency or an incident. And of course, the big advantage to the air ambulance, Mihal, is how quickly you can then get that patient to the to the hospital that best suits that patient. Yeah, no, that's a, that's absolutely the case, and and one of the things we know from looking at last year, and obviously your listeners are very familiar with CUH. So um, last year, about one third of our taskings resulted in a transfer to hospital from scene, um, and of those transfers to hospital, sixty six percent of those. 
uh, we're to CUH. So we're we're very grateful of the support that we get from Bishopstown GA, um, who allow us to land um, on their pitches and obviously are close to CU to CUH. Um, so yeah, as you say, I mean, if you take an example of somebody who's out on, you know, people from Cork are often tra- travel out for days out and day trips out to Dingle and out to the peninsulas and Waterville. You know, a good example would be. Um, if you needed to be transferred to CUH from, and you were out for a, a day's drive out to Waterville, or you were on holidays during the summer, um, you would be two and a half hours by road. You're about tw- thirty, about thirty minutes from from places like Waterville uh, into CUH. So that two hours, if you're experiencing a stroke or a STEMI heart attack, where you would need a, a stent um, fitted very, very quickly by the team in CUH, then. You know that that difference of two hours really can be the difference between yeah, and it's, life and, it's, and life and death. It's even for people living out on the tips of the peninsula, the Bear of the Mizzen Peninsula. That's a, a fair drive to get oh, them into 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 yeah. uh, Cuh. And I, I know it's hard to say definitively, but there are people alive today, Mihal, because the air ambulance was available to them. Oh, there are absolutely people who are alive because of the air ambulance. There's there's absolutely no doubt about that. But there are also people whose lives are dramatically different now than than how they could have been, uh, were it not that they got to the hospital quickly. Um, so, you know, look, the, the, the ground services crew that, that work with the National Ambulance Service um, are a really tremendous group of people. But, you know, they, the fact that, you know, people live in rural Ireland, live on rural back roads, um, you know, it, it, we're in COVID times, every resource is stretched. So, you know, we, we're, we're delighted to actually work in partnership with the National Ambulance Service um, and between the road crew for National Ambulance Service, who are often on scene with the crew from the air ambulance, um, that really often is the, the thing that makes the difference between between living and dying. And one of the things I think that was really important for us last year, uh, we were talking to the crew here earlier. Uh, we believe last year we did one of the, the longest HEMS flights, which was we brought a paediatric patient last year uh, from Bally de Hob uh, up to Dublin. So last year, again, we would have actually been involved in the transfer of about ten children oh. from um, from from Cork, Kerry, and, and even places like Galway up to Dublin, so um, you know that was a big development for us last year was that increase um, that increase in, in in bringing more children to hospital. But as I mentioned in the in the introduction, uh, Mihal, and, and I think this is what a number of people will scratch their heads about. You're a charity. Do you get any state funding? Not at this moment in time. Um, now I do have to say that we we did have very good conversations last year, uh, both with the Department of Health uh, and also uh, with local politicians, um, who are all you know really understand uh, where we're coming from in terms of our funding need. You know I think it's no secret that um, you know the organisation had its had its difficult days, um, and and I think what happened you know we we like a lot of the charities um, have have fallen foul of COVID. A huge amount of our money would and should be coming from the community, um, but again, COVID really, you know, put a stop to a lot of that. Um, we are really hopeful, genuinely hopeful, that the government are going to, to step in and not necessarily to completely fund the organisation because you know we 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 believe that the community wants to be involved. It's there, you know, the, the clue is in the name. It's the community air ambulance. We want it to remain as such. And um, so, what we're looking to try to do is to achieve a mix of support from government and ongoing support from uh, the communities that we serve, from individuals, uh, from households and, and from companies as well that, that would like to support an organisation like ours. Because air ambulances and community air ambulance, ambulances operate in other countries on a fundraise basis, don't they? 
They do, but if you if you look, for example, at at the UK and and in particularly at England, England has about fifty five air ambulances. Most of those are are serving counties, um, but you have to look at the UK and look at the centres of population. Yeah, they are vastly very different, different, very um, different than than they are here. So we're actually serving an area in the most about a 30,000 kilometres square area in Munster and, and a little bit beyond. That's a population of about. 1.5 million people and we have to raise 2 million euro within that population whereas in the UK you know in some of the counties in, in England for example you would have big cities like Birmingham, Manchester uh, places like that within those and, and it's it's easier to fundraise you know look we know if we were based in Dublin on the eastern seaboard you know we would be talking to a bigger population uh, fundraising wouldn't, wouldn't be but such wouldn't a challenge be a big, but, big an issue. How much does each mission cost me all by the way? So the average cost per tasking, so every time we, we get tasked by the National Ambulance Service, you're, you're looking at a cost of about €3,500. So the total cost on average for the helicopter side of things alone um, this year is projected to be about €1.5 million. Euro. Um, then on top of that, we have a fleet of rapid response vehicles uh, who are dotted in, in a lot of counties outside of the area we serve with the air ambulance, so places like Mayo and Donegal. And last year, they were tasked over 800 times. So in total, last year, between our, our volunteer doctors um, in places like uh, Mayo and, and Donegal, and, and we have some doctors as well serving Dublin, uh, we would have been tasked in total across all of our, our services, I suppose, over 1,300 times last year. OK, and the, the, the pandemic obviously making fundraising uh, so much harder. Oh, it has, of course. It, it has absolutely, of course. But, you know, we did, we did see last year some huge fundraising from communities you know i'm i'm reminded of uh, things like the rory o'connor tribute gofundme page that was set up last year uh, the community of Glengariff last year raised us nearly forty thousand euro uh, you know we've we've had some tremendous support um and i suppose really our call uh, to to listeners and and to people maybe who are involved in vintage clubs or sports clubs is you know if if and when it's safe to do so if they're looking to organize events for charity um, we, we'd love people to to, to think about us and, and to look at the possibility of, yeah, of working see, with I, us and helping us to, yeah, to continue. I, I think with the air ambulance it's one of those things uh, is if God forbid something happens to yourself or to a family member and you need the services of the community air ambulance you then see how important this service is but we never know the day or the hour Michal when any of us will need the service and that's why it's so important that the money is raised to make sure that this service is always available. Oh absolutely you know nobody nobody gets up in the morning expecting to be flying to CUH in, in a helicopter and be critically ill or critically injured but the types of incidents and emergencies were called to you know people people maybe who experience a heart attack may have had early warnings so again even just I suppose a message to people if if people are feeling unwell or feeling in chest pains, um, you know, people do need to go see their, their GP or go, you know, go and, and go and get that checked out. But things like cardiac arrest, you know, like, you know, everybody knows in the last few weeks there have been cardiac arrests in, in parts of Cork County involving very young people. Um, you know, so you don't have 15, 16 year olds or their parents expecting them uh, not to come home that evening mm-hmm. um, and to have had a cardiac arrest. Or, you know, we've, we've had experiences and I think often what we hear is that you know, it, this may not be the type of charity that people from the city are affected by. But, you know, we've had situations where people have gone for a drive from Cork City yeah, uh, yeah, or people point. living in Cork City who are cycling out in Ventry 
um, who've come off their bike or involved in an RTC out in Kerry, and and they find themselves back at back in their home city, but but having gone back by air ambulance. By, yeah. So you know this. You know, it is. We we talk a little affects, bit about paying it forward. Yeah, you know, you just never know. You it just it never know. absolutely affects everyone. Somebody's picking up on the fact that when you mentioned that you have to let you land at the at the GA pitch uh, when you're bringing a patient to uh, CUH, why is there not a helicopter pad at uh, CUH? That's been an ongoing issue for a number of years, isn't it, Michal? It has. Now we we again this morning we've we've heard some murmurings that there there may be movement on that again. So um, you know, I think that that. That may be something that might start to happen. It's definitely necessary. You know, we would even know that while it's brilliant to have the the availability of Bishopstown GA, you know, there can be a difference of about 15 minutes in terms of the time that that would cost us when we're landing, the crew going up to the hospital, the crew having to get back up to Bishopstown GA. So actually putting in a helipad um, at CUH would, would significantly increase the the availability of not only ourselves, but obviously if the likes of the Air Corps happen to be tasked to a, you know, a multi-vehicle job with us uh, or if we're on a tasking somewhere else that they might have, they might have come down to, to, you know, to, to help somebody. You know, we've had situations where both of us have landed, um, both ourselves and the Air Corps have landed at, at CUH, at, the, at Bishopstown actually. So, yeah, it would time, definitely yeah. improve efficiencies. But, you know, but I think generally across the country, I think, you know, what, what, what is starting to happen and I think what really we would welcome happening is that the whole issue of what we would call aeromedicine, so helicopter, HEMS, air ambulance, um, that that really does need to be looked at. You know, the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England are well ahead of ourselves in terms of, you know, their aeromedicine and their air ambulance services. So I think we have a, we have a great opportunity now um, to start to look at how we can affect real change for people right across the country, but particularly the types of areas um, you know that we're all familiar with, which are rural, socially, you know, isolated, uh, difficult to reach out on the peninsulas. Um, you know, so I think there's a great opportunity now for everybody in Ireland, uh, government, and, and key stakeholders like ourselves to start to look at that seriously. Absolutely, absolutely. Just on the costs, by the way, have your costs gone up because of rising fuel costs? No, so that, the small piece of that, but the, the costs are mainly to do with because we a lot most air ambulance charities don't own their their helicopters because they're you know a new helicopter would cost about five million euro. You lease it, up, but we they're leased, and it would yeah. be similar for even the the North of Ireland air ambulance. Um, and because you're leasing it, you're looking at it, um, having ongoing maintenance, and in order to pay for maintenance. Uh, every t- every hour we fly, we pay a we pay a fee. It's, it's oh, to cover the maintenance cost. Okay, all right, that's so how it works. it's effectively the, so. Therefore, the more we fly, the higher our cost. But also fuel. The more we fly, the more fuel we burn. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. really a, it's a combination of flying hours. Um, and and fuel usage are, are the main reasons our costs are going up. Okay, well, I can see a lot of uh, listeners uh, saying it's what a fantastic service it is to have in our area and people saying, long may you continue. Um, the I saw, somebody else says, I saw a money box, a donation box for the community air ambulance on a shop corner, on a shop counter. Is it okay to put money into those I wanted to put in a 10 euro or 20 euro note do you collect in shops? We do absolutely. Yeah. So if if people see boxes in shops, they they absolutely can can put money in the box. We have a gentleman called who's well known in 
parts around Mill Street and our crew called Donny Lucy, who's out and about, and Donny looks after those. Does he? Um, I done Donny. And the other thing we would we would say is that um, the other thing that people may see on some of our new boxes it's what's called tap to donate. So if you you know if you use Apple Pay on your phone to to buy music or to you know to to buy apps, you can actually if you tap your phone against the top of those boxes. It'll actually take the donation from Brilliant. from your Apple Pay. So it's it because we're conscious a lot of people these days because of COVID aren't carrying cash and coin. Um, so there's that option. And the other thing, of course, if your listeners want to either donate or want to have a conversation, maybe if they they think they might be able to fundraise for us this year, and uh, they can go to our website, which is communityairambulance.ie, or they can call us on our phone number, which is o two one. Four one nine zero nine nine nine. Okay, listen. Continue good luck with the great work of the community air ambulance, uh, Mihal, and thank you for joining us on the program this morning. Thank you, Patricia. Good Thanks morning, bye bye. Bye bye. That is the CEO of the air ambulance, Mihal Sheridan. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Our lines are open. Court today on C one zero three with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk; they walk the walk. Cmig.ie. C103's Irish Sunday is the big show on your radio. Sunday mornings from 10. Four hours of all-time favourites from Cleena Hagen to Mike Denver. Susan McCann to Derek Ryan. And Daniel O'Donnell to Nathan Carter. It's Cork's greatest hits, guaranteed. And everyone is Irish. Join us Sunday mornings from 10am. Irish Sunday on C103. Mary has WhatsApped us from Rathcool. She's one of the neighbours at the Community Air Ambulance who wants to wish me Hall and the team the very best of luck on the fantastic work that they do. OK, we're going to Mallow Guard, the station for this week's Guard the File, joined by Sergeant Tony Cronin. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome. You start with a break into a shop. This was in Charleville and it was on New Year's Eve night. That is uh, correct, uh, Patricia. It was a shop on the main street in Charleville, very close to the library. And it was approximately 2 a.m. in the morning when this break-in took place. And there would be just a, an entrance at the front of the shop. There's a wall to the side of it, and access would have been gained over the wall and into the back of the premises. So we're talking about 2 o'clock in the early hours of the 1st of the 1st. So uh, people may have been out. I know the pubs were closed early, but people may have been travelling through the town of Charleville. You might have been walking home. You might have been visiting a relative. You may have seen someone in the vicinity of the library area in Charleville, be it on the main street or in the car park at the back of the library. And if you notice anything or can remember any detail about a person just standing observing or a a car uh, in in the area that would normally be there, uh, the Gardaí in Charleville would like to get a call from you with any information because any information is is of assistance, be it putting someone into the equation or taking them out. So. Okay, and words of advice to people on scam texts, uh, Tony, still very much doing the rounds. Very much so. We were getting lots of um, calls to the station, be it people getting scam calls, be it uh, different, um, we'll say, ways of buying um, items online without mentioning any particular uh, yeah. brand. And basically, they're looking for too much detail from from the customers. And also, we're getting where couriers are involved. Um, people are getting text messages, but they're not actually from couriers. 
And but what, what but they look like they're coming from a courier. They look like they're yeah. coming from a courier. And what they're saying is that your your parcel is delayed. Could you please download the link? Could you? And basically, they're trying to bring you along the line, and then eventually they'll be looking for personal details from you. So you will know yourself whether you're waiting on anything and contact the company directly yourself. Um, there's a lot of fraud going on on the phone, by text message, things like that. So be very careful. Um, by all means, you can answer a call, but don't give away any information. Yeah, I took a call a couple of weeks ago from somebody purporting to be from Amazon Prime. And and, and I knew straight away that it was a scam, but I decided I'd just stay on the call just to see how, by God, they are convincing. They really are convincing. And then when I, when they, I think, started to realise that I knew they were a scam and I, w- I was fooling them, you know, the, the, I, the, the guy on the phone was getting really aggressive. I mean, it was just, it was incredible that you can see how a, a more vulnerable person will get very intimidated by somebody being that aggressive on the phone. Very much so. So how we would encourage, especially people living on their own, be it if they're middle-aged, single, uh, young people or elderly, Always, before you commit to something, run it by somebody else, a neighbour, a relative, someone like that. And especially when there's money involved, um, ask people to ring back and then get it verified for yourself. If, you, if, you're, you've, if you've any doubt at all, uh, go and get advice on it and ask them to ring back. Say you can't um, uh, finalise what you're doing at the moment and call back in a day or two. It'll give you the chance to, to Stop inquire. and think and yeah. don't download anything that can then give these scam artists access uh, to your online banking or whatever. Okay, exactly. so just be aware, still very much out there. Okay, a car broken into in Castle Martyr. Yes, there was a car broken into in Gortonor in Castle Martyr. It's um, an estate in Castle Martyr. And for, just to outline to people what tends to happen, a car broken into and people will go through the car for any property, obviously, that's inside it. But if they can find keys to a house, they then will try and enter the house. Mm. So what we're trying to say is there are people out there that will say we'll travel to different towns at different times of the year, be it late at night when people are well gone to bed, and they'll walk around, check cars, etc. It does happen. So please lock your cars, number one. And number two, don't leave any property, personal property, any items of money or um, IT equipment, and our keys in your car. And this will try and cut out this um, theft and burglary that could could have happened on this occasion. Okay, and a theft of number plates from uh, from cars, is that is that very common? It used to be going back a number of years, but it seems to have got more prevalent now. And what we find is um, drive-offs, thefts, things like that. So what we would encourage the public to do, if you come out, uh, anytime during the day and you notice your front or back number plate is, is missing, report us at the guard station. Report as much information as you possibly can. And just as we're on the subject of reporting, we would like to compliment the public at the moment. We're getting great assistance in solving cases. Brilliant. And what we notice as well is that it's people who are um, not in the younger generation that are actually taking more notes of what's happening around. They're recording details of cars, um, I'm talking about middle-aged elderly people as well, and in particular, and they're getting a lot of detail and they're forwarding that to the guards, and it has helped the guardie in Cork North Division um, 
Well massively in, in the yeah, last Yeah, and if, uh, if you one. know, I mean, you know, we all live in our, our own areas and you're generally speaking, you'll know people, you know, you know who drives what car in an area. And if, you know, if you see something that just looks a little bit suspicious, somebody, you know, driving slowly around, almost mm-hmm. casing an area, or the one I always try and keep a lookout is for elderly neighbours. If you see people trying to engage with elderly neighbours, I'm always keeping a very close lookout for that. But it's just to, just to, to take details, as you say, it can be the simplest thing like uh, and I think with our phones at the moment we all have cameras you can quickly get a picture of somebody's car registration number very quickly exactly and the details you know either the rage or the colour yeah every little detail all helps all 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 helps helps. okay and we are even though you know a bit of a stretch in the evening where we're a long way off from the grand stretch in the evening but people are out walking and people are out uh, cycling Uh, high vis jackets uh, Tony yes um, we've had a couple of issues over the last couple of months we've had one or two accidents where people have been out on the, the public road we're talking 11 o'clock at night it could be 9 o'clock at night we've had accidents with people on push bikes um, they may not have had uh, proper fluorescent jackets things like that so what we're asking the people if you're going out walking uh, are you going running or are you going cycling um, put on a fluorescent jacket number one and if you're on a push bike make sure that you have your lights working and your reflectors so that you're very visible to the public okay all right, good good words of advice. Tony, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is Sergeant uh, Tony Cronin based at Mallow Garda Station. We were talking about the Community Air Ambulance with Michal uh, Sheridan earlier this hour. Eddie was on to say, what about the insurance companies? Should insurance companies not be contributing in some way to the Community Air Ambulance? And Eddie's thought on this is that the Community Air Ambulance are saving people's lives first and uh, foremost. But they're also saving other people from huge injuries. If you can get somebody, you know, with a head injury or a spinal injury, if you can get them to hospital uh, quicker, it completely changes the course of the future for that uh, person, which the knock on effect will be. Insurance companies are not paying out these massive uh, pre- these massive payouts to somebody say who would be left paralysed because of an accident because the air ambulance was there able to get the person into hospital to get the attention that they needed so Eddie feels because of that do our do insurance companies not have a role to play in some way in funding towards the community air ambulance I think that's a fair enough point thank you for that Eddie You're listening to Cork Today on Replay phone and text lines are currently closed a Mill Street listener has just been on to us uh, to say hi I'm looking for a number to renew my public services card they don't do the 1890 yeah, all those numbers the 1890 1850 that's why we had to change our number they all went at the start of uh, the year I wonder do any of your listeners know the number please and that's from a Mill Street listener we have the number for you John Paul dug it out public services card their help desk now is, is an 0818 similar to ours 0818 837 So that's 0818-837-000. That's the new number for public services card. I know when I went online, they tried to get you to do a lot of that online. So if you've got access online as well, you can renew it that way. Now, was it earlier this week? I always get so confused with all the different interviews that we do. It was. It was Tuesday of this week. I spoke with uh, Professor John Sado. He is Professor of Chemistry at uh, UCC and he was the gentleman who was talking about air quality. He's an expert in air quality and he was talking about how we need to stop 
doing using open fires and the burning of solid fuels and uh, if he hid his way he'd get rid of chimneys in everybody's house and I did when I introduced him and brought him on the programme I did say to him John you're not going to be very popular on this one and he wasn't very popular the majority of people were very unhappy about the notion of being asked to stop using their open fire now that we ha- we did have a cohort of people who said I don't have any other way of heating my, my home how does Professor John suggest you know where do I get my heat from uh, and on Tuesday as well it was particularly cold uh, chilly day and then we'd others that say they just like the idea the idea on a winter's evening of sitting with a nice you know roaring open fire other people were saying they've had stoves uh, installed but cost seemed to be a big issue uh, for a lot of people as to why they like uh, open fires well I've just seen that um, uh, Professor John Soto has uh, tagged us on a tweet and he says unhappy listeners to C103 Cork about burning the coal and wood of their homes please take a look at your air quality last night and he has put up on Twitter a picture of air quality over Munster for last night and you can clearly see it's a dark red colour over Cork. Waterford actually looking at it even seems to be uh, worse but uh, certainly the air quality in that picture not looking good and of course obviously Professor John that's where he's coming from it's all to do with public health and saving people's uh, lives and somebody else on Twitter says air quality last night in Cork was awful there was still a stink of smoke there today and that was just before midday people are still burning items that they shouldn't be burning and that was somebody to our Twitter account at C103 at Cork also coming into us, this is on the smart meters. When I spoke about the smart meters earlier, because we had a listener who wants to know, can he refuse to have one of the new electricity smart meters installed? He didn't give a reason as to why he wants to. He doesn't want one, but you, you can decline, but you need to contact the your electricity supplier and register your preference or if the ESP networks contact you to say they're installing one you need to tell them that you don't want one and then they're going to engage with the customers to try to persuade them as to why you should get a, a smart meter and I mentioned I got my smart meter put in at the back end of last year on the start of November I think and another listener said I had my uh, smart meter installed in September I asked at the time would the price of my electricity go up and the gentleman the engineer installing it says absolutely not and he also said depending on which supplier you're with they're doing offers at the uh, moment Um, and they are and actually because somebody thought that their bill went up when their smart meter went in and I was making the point that that's impossible that that, that, that can't happen but everybody's electricity is, is going up whether you've had a smart meter installed or not unfortunately we all know that electricity costs are going up but when I had my smart meter installed it was at the start of November and I was just out of contract with the supplier I was with so I changed because I had had Bonkers I had Derek Astley on from Bonkers.ie and I was saying I better practice what I preach and I said okay I'm going to change my electricity supplier and I did and I got a better offer and it's the advice that Bonkers.ie say we should be doing it every year so I changed and actually with my electricity now I only got an electricity bill from the new supplier for a month obviously because they, they run in two months but when I checked it versus last year I actually did pay less. Now, my Christmas bill isn't in yet, the one for December and January. That's always my highest bill. I'm kind of half dreading that one because it's always the highest bill and we do know the electricity costs have gone up. But I certainly will have nothing whatever to do with the installation of my smart uh, meter. And um, 
I can't wait and, and I really must look into the smart meter more because there's a lot of services I don't know if all of them have been rolled out yet but they're going to start roll, rolling them out uh, as, when more of these smart meters uh, go in but there's a, a listener happy with uh, his or her I don't know if the, he or she and uh, smart meter now I was talking about Morrison's earlier as well because I spotted this yesterday that Morrison's they're a supermarket chain anyone who's been to the UK will know they're a large uh, supermarket chain in the UK and they have decided that across the UK they are getting rid of their use by dates now they're initially doing it on some of their milk products and what they're suggesting to their customers instead of throwing the milk out because the use by date is gone is to do the sniff and the taste test and they're trying to do it to try to stop people throwing away and wasting food items and I'm assuming for Morrison's if it works on their milk products that they possibly might introduce it on other items as well. So we're asking that question this morning. How would you feel about it? Would you like to see Irish supermarkets introduce it? And then as of now, when you open up your fridge, it's, it's fridges in the main. No, it's not, it's not to say you can't have a use by or sell by date on items in your cupboard that are gone out of date. But what do you do with food items if the use by date or the best by date is gone? Uh, do you put the item straight away in the bin? Or do you take a look at it? Do you take a taste? Do you take a sniff and decide, yeah, that's okay. I can still eat that. I'm fine. Anne says, Patricia, happy new year to you. Many happy returns. Anne, I can't afford to waste food. That's the long and the short of it. I will cut a piece of mould off cheese and simply eat the rest of the block. As regards to bread, if I find bread and there's any mould on it, I will put the mouldy slice into the compost heap. What will I do with the rest? I'll turn it into bread pudding. That's what I do with the rest of the bread. Well done. And there's nothing like warm bread and butter pudding. So there's Anne who literally will waste nothing. And and it's she's doing the taste and the sniff test for sure. Now we had uh, a flurry of people contact us on this one as well. And this is just a sample of some of the calls we had in. Deirdre, Tommy, Aaron and Lucy. They say they sniff the milk and use it if it smells okay. So they completely ignored the date while we had uh, Tony, Mary and Eileen on and said they will always check the use by date and if it's past the use by date that particular item goes straight into the bin so there's a divide there with some of our listeners Martin in Mitchestown says years ago it was just you just had enough food and there was very little waste but if there was anything left over then it went to the animals if you had hens they got leftover food and Martin remembers a man who used to call and collect leftover food for pigs it's kind of a little bit like it's like a, was it like a compost bin? You kind of had a, a bucket that you put all the waste food into. And then the man, a man would call. And I mean, I don't know if Martin was in Mitchellstown or was living in a rural area or not. Martin says people are now buying milk and other items and buying too much of it. And then they end up with too many items in their fridge and they end up having to dump stuff because of the use by our sell by uh, date. Martin goes by the smell and taste of an item. He also makes a very valid point about milk. And when milk goes off, people used to use sour milk for baking before. Martin reckons now people don't have time and you can actually buy sour milk what's it is it called sour milk you can buy milk that is gone off for the making of brown bread once upon a time uh, I agree with you Martin I don't have the time anymore but I used to make lovely brown bread and used to always use that sour milk that you bought already sour never kind of waited for for milk to go sour but there was a generation before that if the milk was starting to turn at all they would turn it into it and they would make a brown bread with it instead so you're right on that one thanks for your call uh, Martin 
also on the food items. Hi, Patricia. I think there is a distinction between use by dates and best before dates. Use by dates would be the ones I take more notice of, particularly for things like raw meat or chicken. But I wouldn't be worried about adhering to the best before dates, particularly on items like bread or jams or sauces, uh, etc. Yeah, and the best before one, best before and use, yeah, they are two very different ones. Best, you can certainly eat something that's gone after its best before. It's just the manufacturer is saying it'll be at its prime condition on the best before date, but the use by date Connor and Donnerell says is very different yeah and I don't know to be very honest with you Connor if raw meat or chicken if the use by date was gone I don't know that's I, I hadn't thought about that I don't know if I would be using chicken or meat with the use by a date but certainly on the other items like yogurts and cheeses and breads and jams and, and whatever that's what we're more talking about uh, this morning and another uh, listener says absolutely I'm a sniff person myself. That's what I do. So somebody very much agreeing with what Morrisons have decided to do. Uh, thank you for that. Some of your text to 0862 103 103. Another text in regarding footpaths. We were talking about footpaths earlier on in the programme as well. There's a new footpath according to this listener at Turnpike in Donnerwell. It is very wide at the crossing. I'm afraid of this particular footpath and the extension because I think it's an accident waiting to happen would have others noticed that a turnpike in Donnerwell a very very wide uh, footpath thank you for your uh, text and there was another text I want to get to up this is to do with scam calls when we were speaking in the last hour with Sergeant Tony Cronin and he mentioned there's a lot of scam texts still out there, scam calls uh, still out there and I mentioned that I had had a call from Amazon a couple of weeks ago and I kept the the person on the phone and the person ended up getting very, very annoyed at me because I think they realised but they couldn't be 100% sure that I knew that it was a scam. They got quite aggressive on the phone and I eventually got bored and, and, and hung up. Anne says, Patricia, I also had a call from Amazon just yesterday. Knew immediately, Suzanne, that it was a scam and like you, the gentleman was getting very annoyed with me and said, I just kept talking. I kept making him repeat what he had just told me. Um, he, I had a lot of money. He said I had a lot of money to take. He said he had a lot of money to take from me. He was getting very annoyed. And Anne said, because she kept getting him to repeat, he was getting all of his English words mixed up. And in the end, he completely hung up. It sounds like the same gentleman Anne that was on to me. And then actually, it was a number of months ago, I got a couple of calls in. Now, they, they kept coming from overseas. I can't remember. I think one was from the, the Seychelles and another was from Bangalore. And it was somebody trying to get me to invest. And again, I knew straight away it was a scam call. And there was one girl in particular. I kept her on the phone. I must have been on the phone for about 15 minutes uh, with her and uh, she was trying to get me to invest. She didn't quite explain what she wanted me to invest in but I was telling her that my husband was a fund manager and that he looked after all of the investments and she was saying but would you not look like to look after your own investments? And I said why would I be worried about that? That sounds too much like hard work. And she was trying to do her level best to persuade me and I said no, no and the husband does well with all of our shares and he keeps me in the life I'm accustomed to and then I was kind of getting bored at the end of it and I said look I, I need to go my chauffeur has just arrived I'm a lady that lunches I need to go meet the girls bye 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 bye, bye. and then I hung up on her and I never, I never got another call after that and I kind of got the feeling that she knew 
she kind of knew that I knew it was a scam, but she wasn't sure. So the very fact that I was keeping the conversation going, she was trying to keep the conversation going. And, you know, one of the reasons that I did it was and one of the reasons why I why I wasted 15 minutes of my life that day was I was thinking to myself, if I keep you on the phone for 15 minutes and it stops you calling somebody who may be a little bit more vulnerable and maybe will be a little bit more naive and won't realise that this is a scam call. So that's another reason. It's the same with like what Anne did with the Amazon one. I decided to stay on with the Amazon one as well. Purely just, I I wanted to annoy him more than anything. But I also didn't want him to start ringing somebody else because I've heard of so many people getting caught out on the Amazon one. And I think it's because of the aggressive way they sell it. They really are sales people. So you just have to bring your A game every single time you pick up the phone. We shouldn't have to be doing that. But unfortunately, it's the times in which we uh, find ourselves uh, in. John Paul, uh, taking your calls at 0818103103, just on the air ambulance. Colm and Botovant was listening to my conversation with Michal Sheridan, CEO of the Community Air Ambulance based in Rathcool in North Cork. And uh, Colm is making the point that uh, he's, he's, he really cannot get over the fact that they, this community air ambulance is not publicly funded. And he said, listening to me, Hall, they're tasked by the ambulance service. It's the National Ambulance Service. We get a, a 999 call in and there's a very serious accident and they look at it and they look at the topography of the area and realise we could get an air ambulance in there and airlift that person out and get that person to CUH maybe in 30 minutes. Whereas if we task a road ambulance it's how long will it take the ambulance to get there and they get the patient and then get back up the road and it could be miles away you know and he's making the point you could be two and a half hours if you're out on the Baramism Peninsula or if you're down in Kerry you could be two and a half hours away from CUH that's before the ambulance even gets uh, to you so Colm said listening to all of that and listening to the fact that it's the National Ambulance Service that tasks the air ambulance then surely he says it's the HSE who should be paying for it every single time the air ambulance is tasked uh, Colm reckons an invoice should go into the HSE and they should pay for a job well uh, done if the health service doesn't have enough nurses what do they do they employ agency nurses and they pay them why do they not do the same thing with the community air uh, ambulance yeah, it makes sense to me as well uh, Colm thank you for your call to 0818 103 103 The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie And in view of the current uh, rising numbers of the Omicron variant and in the interest of everybody's safety Kildallery's drive in bingo is cancelled for tomorrow night, Friday the 14th of Jan- January. When Abbey Ladies Football Club, they're hosting their Let's Play Bingo event. Now they're doing it online tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. Books can be purchased online up to noon tomorrow. And you can check out the Mornabi Ladies Football Club Facebook and Twitter pages for more details. Mitchellstown Haven Hub, they're open every Saturday night from 7pm. For anybody who's feeling a little bit lonely, isolated or in distress, please feel free to call in. And a closed collection at Gagan Hall will happen on the last Saturday of the month, 29th of January from 10.30 to 12 noon for drop-off of all unwanted men's and women's clothing, shoes, belts, bags, sheets, duvet covers, curtains and towels. Now, soft toys will also be accepted, but please, no plastic toys, no duvets and no uh, pillows. And it's all in aid of Gagan Hall 
car park fund. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. Now a must-win lotto draw is going to take place this weekend after seven months of the jackpot rolling over. The 19 million euro top prize. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., hasn't been won, would you believe, since the 9th of June last year. Spokesperson for the National Lottery is Frank Weirty, who joins me this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Frank. Hello, Patricia. You're, you're very welcome to the programme. So, if there isn't an outright winner, and there still could be an outright winner this yeah. Saturday, but if there isn't, can you explain to us what will then happen? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's going to be an extremely exciting event. So if we have an outright winner, if somebody matches six numbers, they will win the highest lotto jackpot of all time, 19.06 million. And in that situation, the excess prize funds that are usually added to the jackpot but are not added now because of the cap, they also flow down to the next winning prize tier. So if there's no match six winner, the entire prize fund, which we expect to be in between 20 to 21 million, that'll go down to the next winning prize tier. So that could be at the match five plus bonus level, or as we've seen previously in the last couple of months, it has also gone to the match five prize tiers in some of the draws as well. So we could have multiple large prize winners in Saturday night's draw. So it's really exciting for us and for our players as well. So if, if okay, so someone doesn't get the six numbers, but yeah. say one person matches five plus the bonus, will they get the full 19 million? They, if there's no winner at match six and it goes to match five of the bonus and there's only one winner, they yeah. will get absolutely everything. So Whoa. it'll be it'll be in excess of the 19.6 million. It'll be the entire jackpot funds from the sales of draws that night. So it'll be well over 20 million. And looking back on the history of the National Lottery, you've, ne- you've never had a jackpot roll over for such a long period, have you? This is why it's such an unusual event. And I suppose it's so unusual that we didn't have a will-be-won 
mechanism in the game because it's never happened before. Um, so we are delighted we put in a request to the regulator of the National Lottery before Christmas and we got approval uh, just uh, this week. Um, so it's something that we are delighted to do. It's been going on, as you said, for seven months. A lot of players and go causes have benefited from the prize flow down, but we feel that the time is right to do a will be one event and to finally get a winner of that 19 million euro. And in the weeks leading up to it, there had been a number of jackpot winners, hadn't there? Yeah, we've had 17 uh, lotto millionaires in the game last year, but obviously only five of them were jackpot winners. Uh, but we have had winners at the lower prize tiers. So obviously the jackpot was capped, so we couldn't add any more money to that. So what we saw is on any given draw, we could have had 700,000 to over 1 million euro added to the prize tiers. So we've seen winners benefit at the match five plus bonus and match five. So it has been exciting for players, even though it's been capped and we've had no winner. And did it affect ticket sales? I mean, did more or less people play, particularly since it was capped in October? We normally see a rise in ticket sales once we hit the 10 million. People start talking about it. It's very exciting. And as you can imagine, um, people were so excited to see the 19 million caps. So we've we've sort of uh, just balanced off over the last couple of weeks. I think the time is right uh, for us. It, there's still massive excitement in the game, but I think time is, is right that we have a natural winner at this stage. And this will be one event. Will that happen going, going forward, Frank? It absolutely will. So that was uh, the major issue. We needed a rule change. It's, we have such strict uh, procedures in terms of every single draw that we do in the National Lottery. And a will be one event was not in the rules. So we got the rules changed. In the future, we will never see a jackpot roll like this again. So if we ever do reach cap, and again, it is so unusual that we've hit it this time, but if we do hit it again, we will have a mechanism where we will only have five draws at a cap, okay. and then we will have this uh, similar event again. So so five draws without a winner, the sixth one then would become the will-be-one. You're exactly right. Okay, all right. And um, the other one that we got a lot of questions in over the last uh, couple yeah. of days was the the play play forward. Are you going exactly. to reintroduce the forward we play? Of course, are. So essentially, what happened there is that we had to change the rules of the game. So we couldn't have advanced play because you would have had players who played advanced play, and they would essentially be playing under the old rules. So we had to shut off the advanced play. Uh, so from this draw, you will now be able to play as many advanced plays as you want between uh, two to eight draws. Can you do it for the, after this week? You sure can. After after the Saturday, OK. Exactly. And obviously we're encouraging people to play responsibly. Uh, but it, is play early a good... We were talking about this earlier, saying we were, we were reckoning there'll be queues on Saturday. Are you better off playing early? This is such a good point, Patricia. The one thing, our most common winning uh, jackpot or prize ticket is a six euro quick pick. That's the bare uh, two lines. So you're as likely to win with one ticket than you are purchasing multiple tickets. So the message is to play for fun. Um, you know, the National Lottery is all, all about many people playing, but playing small amounts. So please play responsibly. And in terms of the rush for tickets on Saturday evening and ahead, ahead of the quarter to eight cut-off, we don't want to see queues in shops. You know, we have COVID rampant at the moment. Yeah, that's a good point. If, if you can play early, 
please do if you want if you are going to play please play early yeah whether you buy your ticket today or Saturday you're still in with the same the same chance exactly. and we can all dream of what we do with the 19 million Frank isn't that what it's all about <laughs> that's exactly what it is if you're not in you can't win okay now we have one thing Trisha I just want to ask you if you would help me we have because of the prize flow down to lower prize tiers somebody in Mallow in Cork they won the match by prize tier so the prize down to that level it's €23,367 and they purchased their ticket at Anglin service station in Drummer in Mallow County Cork now they only have until Friday the 28th of January to collect their prize so if you were in that area uh, buying lottery tickets please check your tickets and get in touch with us straight away and have you a date on that? I do indeed so it was Saturday the 30th of October Oh, it's not that long ago. Okay, it's Saturday not. the thirtieth of October. Okay, that would be around the Halloween bank bank holiday weekend, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. And twenty three thousand on the ticket. Twenty three. So we had forty two players at that prize tier. So they all would have shared the excess in the jackpot prize. Oh, of course, box. the cap was in place. Yeah, exactly. the cap was just in place. Okay. So, all right. Okay, that shout-out has gone out. It would be great to pass on that 23,000 to whoever won that. All right, listen, Frank, thank you for that. Thanks, Patricia. And thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to our good afternoon to you as it is now. Frank Weirty, who is a National Lottery spokesperson. Uh, Get your pet questions in, please, because Jane Pickett is going to be joining us in a couple of minutes. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Some of your calls in, still getting in, calls on uh, food waste and the, the suggestion from Morrisons in England who are getting rid of their use-by dates on their milk and suggesting to people to do the sniff and the taste test. Annie in Mill Street was on, she said, in her family household. She has two boys. She said they are both school-going teenagers and they both love to drink milk. She said she's watched them. They'll go to the fridge, they'll pull out a carton of milk, they'll take a sniff, pour it into the glass and then drink it. She said they will never, ever check a use-by or sell-by date on the carton of milk. While on the other hand, her husband and her daughter, the first thing they'll do when they reach into the fridge is check the date and they won't drink the milk if if there is an out of date date on it while the boys are due the smell test. So they're divided right right down the middle in Annie's house in Mill Street. Thanks for that, Annie. John in Cove says on Christmas Eve he was out doing some last minute shopping. He could not get over the amount of people who were buying so much food on the final day before Christmas, bearing in mind that shops did open, and not all shops, but some shops, even some supermarkets were open on St. Stephen's Day. So really, if you were desperately stuck, shops were only closed for one day. And John said it got him thinking that day as he was queuing up, getting his few bits and bobs, looking at the others with their trolleys full. He was wondering how much of that ended up in food waste. Did people have a lot of food waste after Christmas? John is wondering. And thank you to the listener when we were talking about the making of brown bread and I was saying I once upon a time I remember I used to make brown bread when I had more time on my hands and uh, I was calling it sour milk. So I used to buy you buy it in the supermarkets. It's of course called buttermilk. I couldn't for the life of me remember the name of it. So thank you. It's buttermilk is for making bread. But is that not the same thing as using if you had a carton of milk that went sour? Would that to me buttermilk is that not just sour milk? I, I 
take it it's one and the same thing maybe it's not but certainly it was buttermilk I used to make uh, used to buy when I was making my brown bread thank you for reminding me of that our lines are open 0818 103 103 Court Today on C103 with John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie This is the Court Today replay on C103 we were talking about gone off food and used by dates and best before dates. Somebody says, Patricia, there's a video up on YouTube. It's about a 2,000 year old piece of butter that was found. It's called bog butter. And by all accounts, it's still el- 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 edible. And I don't know if I would be trying it. The fact it's 2,000 years old, but it was obviously preserved in the bog. Thank you for that. Okay, we're going to Jane Pickett for your pet questions. But just a quick, I don't normally do lost dogs because we would be forever here calling out lost dogs but uh, Teresa was on to say that there's a dog on the Cork Mallow Road near Rathduff uh, looking totally lost it's running dangerously between traffic he is wearing a red collar and he's obviously missing from somewhere locally in the area so on the Mallow Road is a very busy road near Rathduff that sounds like your dog red collar please head out because we don't want anything to happen to that uh, we don't want the dog to get knocked down Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket part of the Minister Veterinary Group joining me. Good afternoon to you. Jane, you're very welcome. Let me go straight into questions for you, starting with Anne. Question for Jane, please. I have what I would describe as a fine, healthy looking rescue lab. He's about four years of age. Now, she drinks, she, she drinks a lot of water and her urine is very smelly. Last year, I had her urine checked for infection. We also had her checked for diabetes. Everything was, was clear and uh, at the checkup and all is good. But I'm just wondering why would she have strongly smelling urine? Could there be what other reason would, would it be for that? And she, But she does drink a lot of water. Okay, so I think first steps are taken care of. You sound like you've attended the vet, got a urine sample done and all always clear. So that's quite reassuring. Reasons for smelly urine, really top of our list is always infection. So if it really is quite stinky, you know, Sometimes we can catch a sample at a time where there might not be a high infection load within the bladder. So it may be worth chatting to your vet about whether they think it is worth repeating the sample just to make sure because really top of my list for smelly urine is infection. Now, other things that can cause smelly urine. um, In a female dog, there's fewer causes than in males. So in males, sometimes they can have kind of a, it's almost like pheromones on the urine and that can make it quite stinky. But in a female Sometimes if they're holding the urine in their bladder for quite a while, so if let's say they're inside the house for a large portion of the day and not being left out frequently enough to pee, you know, a big pool of urine within the bladder can sometimes become quite strong and quite strongly smelling if it's very concentrated. So that may be one cause. As regards the drinking a lot, um, drinking is quite variable. Normally it should be about two mils per kg of body weight per hour they drink. Now, that's quite a scientific way of working it out. But what you can do is have a discussion with your vet about the frequency with which your pet is drinking, and they may suggest doing a water monitoring trial. So essentially, that just means measuring out how much water they're getting at the start of the day. Let's drink it for a full 24 hours, and then assessing how much is left at the end of the day. And your vet will be able to do a little calculation just like that to let you know if that's an appropriate amount for your dog to be drinking 
or if it's an inappropriately high amount for your dog to be drinking. Sometimes they can just go and have a little sip of water, but it looks like they're always at the bowl. And then other times they can really be drinking quite a lot and always at the bowl because they're extra thirsty for, as our, as our listener kind of said, diabetes, urine infections, kidney problems. So it is worth keeping a little eye on this, particularly if it's persisting. And it's worth letting your vet know that it's still going on. Because I think as a vet, a lot of the time, one thing we're always concerned about is that we'll see these dogs run some tests things might come back normal and we'll put a plan in place for if things don't improve or if things deteriorate. And I suppose you're at home with your pet and if you've noticed that things are still lingering on, yes, it's reassuring that the initial tests have ruled out some major problems, but it's always worth flagging with your vet that it's still going on because, you know, we don't know unless you tell us. So I think it might be worth just flagging it again and it, and they'll, they'll guide you depending on the results they've already found as to if there's any other investigations that need to be done or samples that need to be repeated. Okay, Helen has a Yorkie male, uh, almost a year and a half old, uh, not neutered yet. When I take him for a walk, he's fine. He'll go to the loo, does his business and all of that. But as soon as he comes back into the house, he'll go to the toilet again. No matter how long he's been out, no matter how long the walk is, he'll always come back in and go to the toilet inside in the house. Why would he be doing that? I think this little fellow's got into quite a habit of doing it properly when he comes back. So dogs are creatures of habit. This little dude has probably formed the habit once he gets back inside peeing to either mark his territory again once he gets back or because his surroundings may smell to him, even not to the human nose it might not smell, but because their sense of smell is so strong, it might smell of his own urine. And once a dog marks an area as kind of a safe toileting spot, a lot of the time they will kind of reinforce that smell by peeing there regularly because they've designated that as their little toilet. So you really need to try and break that habit as best you can. It sounds like you're taking him for really great walks. He's having lots of opportunities to pee outside. So I think that sounds like that's taken care of. Um, First thing I would do is make sure that the area where he always pees is spotlessly clean with a pet safe cleaner to get rid of any lingering smells of ammonia. And as I say, we might not smell it, but they will. So make sure it's absolutely sparkling clean because if there's any residue there, he'll be tempted to go and repeat the behaviour. And what I would say is that it is worth keeping and bearing in mind that there might be some underlying health issue that might cause this. So very similar to our last caller, just taking him to the vet for a little check over, maybe running a urine sample just to make sure that his urgency to pee isn't increased. But I think in a young, healthy dog, otherwise it's very unlikely to be an underlying health issue. It's more likely to be behavioural. So clean the area, take him for lots of walks. And as soon as he pees inside, I think the worst thing you could do is reprimand him because a lot of the time that only serves to make him be more secretive about the behaviour. So let's say he has an accident inside. The best thing to do is keep your cool, take him outside to pee or try and interrupt the pee and take him outside to complete any kind of like shouting or anything like that. He'll just continue to do the behaviour. He'll just try and be more secretive about it. This is going to take a little bit of time to reform that habit into something normal so that he's peeing outside, but it's worth sticking with it. And if you're struggling, it can be beneficial to get a behaviourist involved just to assess if there's any other any other causes in, in the particular home or his particular situation that might be causing that to happen. OK, listen wants to know advice, please. What's the best barking collar that you can get trying to stop a dog from barking? Or are you a fan of barking collars? Uh, I'm 100% not a fan thought, of barking collars. I thought collars. you were going to say that. Yeah. Um, so barking collars, they work in two ways. Sometimes they'll emit a noise when they have the vibration of a bark near them. So they try, start to interrupt the bark. 
a lot of the time these don't work. They just start to annoy the dog more and then they're barking because they don't know why the hell there's a beep coming out of the noise around their collar. And other times it can emit a shock, which sounds quite kind of brutal in a sense that when the vibration of the bark happens near the collar, it'll emit a small electric shock to try and discourage the behaviour. These are not things I would recommend. Um, What you need to look at is not stopping the behaviour itself, but looking at what's causing the behaviour to occur in the first place. So generally dogs, if they're excessively barking, excessively vocalising, it's usually boredom, fear or stress. So you need to have kind of a a hard look at the environment and say, well, is there anything that could be stressing my little dog out? Is there anything that could be done to relieve his boredom? So to give him more kind of brain work to do. So engaging with more walks, more sniff walks, more kind of interaction with him, more training to get that brain working and satisfied so he's more relaxed. Or is there anything he could potentially be fearful of in the environment? So I wouldn't recommend barking collars. They don't tend to work, and really a lot of the time, if it is fear, stress, or anxiety that's causing the problem, it can perpetuate it further. This is one that if it's causing a problem, I'd advise getting a veterinary behaviourist involved, and your own vet will be able to let you know who locally they've worked with and would recommend as a, a fully qualified professional. Okay, Sandy has contacted us from the ROAR, the West Cork Animal Welfare Organisation, just to say, hi Patricia and Jane, would you please give a reminder to listeners, it'll be kitten season in a few months, so please get your cats neutered, especially if you're feeding a feral cat. It's important, isn't it? It's really, really important. And I think there are a huge amount of feral cats and hence unwanted kittens out there in this country. And it is very preventable. I think spaying is always the responsible choice. Um, Particularly with feral cats, it can always be a challenge to to catch them. But some charities do trap, neuter and release. Well, that's what Roar do in in West Cork. They're a brilliant group, yeah. and that's absolutely brilliant work to do because that's, that's controlling the cat population. And also it's healthier for them. They don't have the stress of getting pregnant multiple times throughout their life. And we know that one unspayed cat through all of their progeny can be the, you know, can result in hundreds of thousands of other cats down their generational lines. So it is really trying to nip the problem in the bud, control the population and preserve the health of the feral cat population itself. Okay. All right. We leave it there. Listen, we'll chat again next uh, Thursday in the meantime. Thank you for that and have a good week. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon to you, Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. And thank you to, to somebody when I was talking about what's, is sour milk suitable for making brown bread with, as somebody else had suggested, and I thought it was. Somebody said, Patricia, the sour milk available in the shops is called buttermilk, but unfortunately the pasteurised milk does not sour. It just goes rancid and therefore it's not suitable for baking or consumption. You've seen the Women's uh, Council of Ireland are asking uh, people at half four today to light a candle in remembrance of Ashleen uh, Murphy who was murdered yesterday in County Offaly. Uh, there's vigils and others vigil going on in Galway but they're asking people wherever you are just to light a candle at half four and uh, a minute silence and to remember Ashleen. Wish you rest in peace. That's where I leave you for today. Nick uh, with you. Back with you tomorrow at 10. Today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.